for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who calls, who the Lord our God calls to himself. Ascends the reading of the word of the Lord. Let us call upon our God in prayer and ask for his blessing on the preaching of the word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that you give us visible signs and means of your word to confirm in our hearts the blessing that you give to us. And Lord, we pray now that you would bless the preaching of your word, that it would be faithful and true to your word. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would cut away the sin that is in our hearts that your word that pierces through joint and marrow between bones and flesh and to the inner recesses of our souls, Lord, would you do your work by your word that is living and active. May you renew in us our desire to follow after you. Grant us faith as we receive your word. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Have you ever been lost while you're driving? Have you ever been lost while you're driving? I certainly have. Now, husbands and wives, wives, you may say, yes, my husband has been lost while driving. Now, husbands, you might say, I have not been lost. It has been my plan all along to take this detour. When your wife clearly knows, sitting in the passenger seat, that this is no detour, but you are trying to figure out how to trace your steps back to where you're going. But when you're lost, you are trying to figure out how to get back to where you need to be. And so what do you look for? You look for things that you recognize or things that tell you that you are on the right path. You look for signs. Signs are a way to confirm to you that you are going in the right direction. We have all kinds of signs in this life. We have signs on the street. We have signs on the road. We have signs... All around our house, we have things as you walk in this building. There is an exit sign illuminated in in red that tells you that you are going in the right direction. Signs to us are help for us. But we also would not confuse that when we have seen that sign, we have arrived at the thing itself. Nobody would stand under the exit sign in the back of this room and say, I have now exited because I am at the exit sign. You would not walk up to the sign that says Madison 30 miles away and say, now I have arrived at Madison since I know the direction to get there. The sign is a pointer to the way in which we should go. It tells us where the thing is to be found. It shows us what the thing might actually be like. But it is not the thing itself. And this is what I want us to think about today as we think about this sign of baptism what it means for us. But more importantly, I would like to us to wrestle with this question of who is baptism for? Understanding that it is a sign, we also must ask, who is this sign for? And why is it for infants as we have just seen today? 
This is a disagreement in the broader church about the nature of baptism, that some believe that baptism is only for those who profess faith in Christ before the church, and that that is a sign not first and foremost of God's promise, but it is a sign of their faith, confirming that they indeed are true believers, whereas we, in our Reformed tradition, have a different understanding of baptism, that it is a sign of God's promise, that it is a sign of what God does and what him, him marking us out. So how do we think about this question? Well, importantly for us today is this passage of Acts that I believe helps us to navigate and understand how to answer this question of what is baptism and, more importantly, who is it for? The Israelites in Jerusalem had come on Pentecost to celebrate the meal of the feast of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit descends as he does in chapter 2 as tongues of fire upon the disciples. These disciples begin prophesying and they begin speaking in foreign languages before all these men. Now, these are Jews that have shown up from all different reaches of the surrounding area. There was a multitude of people. And they came from all over. We, they say that they hear us in their own native languages. Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. All over, Jews had come to gather to worship at Pentecost. And here now the Holy Spirit has descended upon the apostles and they are speaking the gospel, preaching God's word, and these men and women are hearing them in their, foreign, in their own tongues, their own languages, even their own dialects. And then after Peter launches into a sermon telling these people that they are now guilty for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, some of them actually condemned Jesus to death and through the hands of the Roman guards, they crucified Jesus. That is how Peter ends his sermon. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That he is the Son of God, the ascended Savior, come to declare forgiveness of sins and salvation in his name. He is the Lord in Christ, and now he has, has the right and authority to send the Holy Spirit, whom they are now seeing at work among them. Now, these men realize what they have done, that they have crucified Jesus Christ. They have crucified the Son of God. And they ask the all-important question, what shall we do? And Peter says to them two things, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But then he says something, and he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But then he says something interesting. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls, our God calls to himself. This is what I would like for us to look at this morning. The promise that is declared here. The promise that is renewed, that is brought forward in this sermon, in this response that Peter gives to the disciples. Well, what is this promise? Some have pointed to the Holy Spirit, which I think is in mind, and I will touch on this 
in a moment, but ultimately, I believe, based on the language that Peter uses here, that this promise is the same promise that God declared to the people of Israel through Abraham, the patriarch. In Genesis 17, 7, God said to Abraham, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. The promise can be summed up at the end of those words there. I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is the formula, the covenantal formula. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is repeated throughout the Old Testament and it is also repeated in the New Testament in Revelation. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is a promise that God is making to Abraham and to his children. Behind this truth, though, there is a fundamental truth about our relationship with God. Abraham understands something. God cannot just say, I'm going to be your God. Because how can a holy God dwell and be a God to wicked, unrighteous people? God must execute them. He must execute his judgment upon them. How can he do this? We must remember that Genesis 17, that passage we just read, comes after Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve fell. Many millennia later, now this promise comes to Abraham. In order for a wicked people to belong to God, they must be righteous. Their sin must be cleared away. Abraham believed in God's promise that he would do this. He did not know how. He did not understand, but he understood that if God is going to be my God and I am going to be his people, God must have a way that he is going to deal with my sin and provide me with the righteousness that I need. Abraham believed in God's promise that he would do this. And then in Genesis 15, God reckons or imputes to Abraham righteousness. Abraham trusts in God, and God imputes to him righteousness. Now, Abraham wasn't righteous. He was a wicked man. He was a worshiper of false gods living in the foreign land of Mesopotamia. Yet God considered him righteous freely. And Scripture unfolds this in the New Testament, and we see this in the life of Abraham, that God teaches that He can do this because he will provide a substitute. Later on in Abraham's life, with his son Isaac, God portrays this, that he will provide a substitute for him when Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac. But in the New Testament, God connects these dots for us through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 and in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 sees that God is promising salvation to Abraham in this declaration of, I will be your God and you will be my people. Galatians chapter 3, 8, and says this, and the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. This is the blessing of Abraham. This righteousness that Abraham received by faith 
is then later confirmed to him with a few signs, with a sign. Genesis 17, 7, we hear this promise of inheriting eternal life. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will give you a blessing, a land, an inheritance that you will have fellowship with me and ultimately life in heaven, as the book of Hebrews tells us, that Abraham was not looking to a city and foundation that was built by man, but a city and foundation that was built by God. He was not looking to an earthly reward. A few verses later, God confirms this to him. In 1711, he says, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. The promise is given, and then a sign is given to confirm that promise. Romans 4 tells us, in chapter 4, that this was a sign and seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. This will be important for us as we consider baptism in a moment. But what I want you to see is the language of what Romans chapter 4 says about this sign that Abraham receives. It is a sign and seal of the righteousness he has by faith. It is not a sign and seal of Abraham's faith. It is a sign and seal of the righteousness that comes by faith. Not Abraham's faith, but of the righteousness that comes by faith. Abraham believes God, and God gives him this sign to him, to confirm to him that he indeed truly has righteousness through faith. And then God tells him to apply this same sign to his sons, to the children of the covenant. Now, there is much that could be said, and I'm not going to deal with everything today under this topic of infant baptism or under the topic of circumcision. But what I want us to see is that God has made this promise to Abraham, and Abraham, Hebrews tells us, greeted it from afar. And that God would fulfill this promise to him. And that is what is happening in Acts chapter 2. God is actually fulfilling this promise that he had given to Abraham. That Jesus Christ has accomplished this promise. This is precisely what Peter declares to these men in the sermon. That Jesus was the one who brought this reality to life through his death and resurrection and ascension. He ascended into heaven, and he obtained the right to now send the Holy Spirit. And now the sending of the Holy Spirit shows that God is dwelling with his people. And there is a visible manifestation that shows that God is now dwelling with his people. It is the astonishing reality of the Holy Spirit that God is undoing the curse. And he does this by showing tongues of fire resting on the apostles. Chapter 2, verse 3. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It is very important for us that we reflect upon the fact that these tongues were made of fire. 
Throughout the Old Testament, fire is continually associated with the presence of God. Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, when God is making his covenant with Abraham, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, when it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. God made this covenant with Abraham by cutting, having Abraham cut animals in half, and then God, in the symbol of a flaming torch, passes between these pieces, saying, if I do not keep this covenant, may I be like these severed halves of animals. I will keep this covenant. He is making an oath. Exodus chapter 3, how does God appear to Moses? A flame in a burning bush, yet the bush was not consumed. How does God guide the people of Israel in the Old Testament? By a pillar of fire in Exodus chapter 13 and 14. This leads to, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, the recognition that God himself is a consuming fire. And then we come to the New Testament. Jesus proclaims this to his disciples. He says, I baptize you with water, or the... John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In Hebrews chapter 12, echoing that passage from Deuteronomy, says this, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, And therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. These tongues of fire show that God is now no longer dwelling in some external place, not in a temple, not in a bush, not in a tabernacle, not on an altar. God has now descended upon his people. God has now fulfilled this promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. He dwells with his people no longer through the Old Testament regulations that the people must keep. They had a whole system in order to keep God among them. The ritual system, maintaining holiness and purity laws. A sacrificial system that if they failed to do this, God would depart from among them. And a new era has dawned, and it is the Holy Spirit who descends upon the disciples, not upon a single chosen man, but upon the apostles. And as we see throughout the book of Acts, it begins to descend upon other people as well. The promise, I will be your God and you will be my people, is fulfilled. It is now demonstrated in the presence of the Holy Spirit that you and I now have who believe in Jesus Christ. That God now dwells in the midst of his people and the means for him to do this has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins has come. How can a holy God dwell with sinful people? Through Jesus Christ. And because of this, because of their sins, God could not dwell with them, with the people of Israel. Time and time again, in their dwelling and wandering in the desert, fire would break out against them. 
because of their sin. Yet now, sanctified by the Holy Spirit and the presence of fire, God now dwells among his people. The long-awaited promise of God has come. And this is what Peter is declaring to these men. What you now see, it has come. The men respond, what shall we do? And Peter calls to them, repent and be baptized. And he repeats this phrase, the promise, the covenant formula, that this promise is for you. That he is saying that you, men of Israel, are heirs of the covenant of Abraham. The same blessing that was promised to Abraham, the same blessing is now being offered to you again today. And the way you access this is by believing in Jesus Christ. And just as God confirmed that covenant with a sign in the old covenant with that or with circumcision, he now confirms that same promise with a new sign, baptism. Repent and be baptized. And this is the essence of what I want us to see here this morning. The covenant that God made with Abraham, he did not just make with Abraham. Let me repeat that. The covenant that God made with Abraham, he did not just make with Abraham. God also included children, Abraham's children, in that covenant. This is what Genesis 17, 7 says. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That is why the children of Abraham were circumcised, not because of Abraham's faith, but because God made the covenant with them too. They were in covenant with God. Now, that did not mean that they were automatically saved. Even Abraham's grandsons, Jacob and Esau, were both circumcised, but Romans 9 tells us very clearly that Jacob was called to salvation and Esau was not, that Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Yet they were both circumcised. They both received the sign of the covenant. Both are called to exercise faith, to believe the promises that are given in that covenant sign. Both must believe, but salvation does not depend upon us. It is God who grants this faith. It is God who raises the dead. It is God who gives salvation. It is God who chooses. And this is the essence of what I want us to see today. That just as God promises, His covenant Just as God promises was with both Abraham and his children, Acts 2.39 reiterates this same promise in the new covenant. In the same way. The promise is for you and for your offspring, your children. 
The promise is for you and for your children. And just as God made this promise thousands of years ago to Abraham, today he renews that promise to us and our children today. And if they belong to that covenant, then they must receive the sign. And this is good news for us today. It is good news for us that God, believers, is in covenant with your children. God is in covenant with you children. If your parents are Christians today, kids, God is in a covenant with you. You belong to him. He is your God and you are his people. And this is why we raise children like they belong to the Lord. As Paul tells us, raise your children in the fear and discipline of the Lord. This is why parent, Paul tells in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that believing, the children of believing parents are holy to the Lord. This is why Jesus blesses infants and rebukes the disciples by saying, to such as these belong the kingdom of heaven. Children, the kingdom of heaven belongs to you just as much as it belongs to your parents. The whole New Testament presupposes this very truth, that children of believers are in covenant with God and that they are to be raised and treated as such and are to receive the covenant sign. This is why in Acts you see over and over again that not only the believers are baptized, but also their households. They belong to the Lord. 